Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of November 2021 and this is episode 232. On today's Mentioned in Dispatches podcast, Dr George Hay, the official historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, talks about the recent non-commemoration report that the Commission published. This report examined why the Commission had failed to commemorate a number of British Empire soldiers after the end of the Great War. George spoke to me from his office in Maidenhead. George, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your role as the official historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission? Uh, yeah, of course, Tom. Thank you for having me on. Um, as you say, I am the official historian at the CWGC, which is an interesting title, uh, especially for those who spend any time reading about the two world wars. <laughs> um, but rather than writing an official history of the organisation, as that role might suggest to those who know a little bit about it, um, it's it's much broader than that, really. Uh, and I guess put simply, it might be seen as ensuring um, almost everything that the organisation does is grounded in a proper understanding of its history. So I guess that's everyday aspects of, of what the Commission does, um, as well as into much bigger projects that potentially fundamentally question what the organisation has done in the past, which is, of course, probably why we're here to talk today. So we're going to talk about the so-called non-commemoration report. Could you tell us what this is and what did it say? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, people, I'm going to make the assumption here that people know a little bit about what the Commonwealth War Graves Committee is and does, um, but we can pick that apart more if you'd like to. Um, but effectively, if people know the general narrative, it is that the organisation is established in 1917 and it's going to commemorate uh, the war dead of the British Empire in perpetuity. Um, so whoever they are, wherever they fell, um, they will be remembered and they will be remembered by name. Now, this is the enduring narrative. It's, it's the narrative that the Commission itself has adopted frequently over the years. Um, what we have known and what the Commission has known for potentially a few decades, really, is that there are anomalies and issues throughout its global estate. So we're talking about working across more than 150 countries, more than 23,000 sites. Um, and there were some issues, um, and we can go on uh, and sort of talk about them in, in greater detail later on, perhaps. But um, there have been some understood and known problems. So if we take Port Tufik, which is up at the um, entrance, it's up at Suez uh, on the canal, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's destroyed um, in the Egyptian-Israeli war, um, and then it is ultimately rebuilt. But the original monument itself did not have the names of the Indian soldiers it was built to commemorate. So these are the men who died uh, in the Middle East during the First World War. Um, what it did was commemorate them uh, in, in numbers alone. So when that was rebuilt, those names were actually held in memorial registers by the and obviously a decision was taken. Well, those names should be on the memorial. So when they rebuilt that, um, that's where they went. Um, so there have been these snippets of understanding, I guess, that there have been issues across the estate where, for whatever reason, um, those, in that case, names weren't added, but there are various other issues that I'll talk about in a bit. Um, but they hadn't 
there was no systematic understanding of what that issue was. So people may be familiar um, with a documentary that aired on Channel 4 back in 2019. Um, this was fronted by David Lammy and was informed by the research of Professor Michelle Barrett. And that programme basically said in East Africa, um, you know, not only uh, are there these three monuments that don't have any names on them, um, it seems as though the Commission has either deliberately or otherwise not commemorated a very large number of men by name and those names don't exist. So unlike the Port Tufik case, the Indian case, where those names were held in a memorial register, here their names weren't anywhere. And so the question was then, you know, how has that come about and who is responsible and where are those names? <laughs> those memorials are often referred to as the Skari monuments. So they are in um, Mombasa, Nairobi and, and Dar es Salaam. Um, and they effectively commemorate all, and when I use the term African, this is an interesting thing that we went through in, in the report. Again, something we can, a little snippet of detail we can dissect if we want to. Um, we tend to adopt language of the time, which is obviously not always good or, or appropriate, um, but it can make trying to describe what we're talking about easier. So I'll make that point up front. But when I say African, I'm talking about um, black soldiers and carriers who are employed in British Imperial Service. Um, and so when we talk about East Africa, uh, when we talk about what is now Kenya, Tanzania, um, Mozambique, Malawi, uh, Uganda, uh, we, we know that during the course of the war, somewhere in the region of a million carriers are raised, uh, tens of thousands of soldiers raised locally. Uh, and they fight and die there um, in in quite great numbers. So when it comes to soldiers, we're talking around, we think about 5,000. Um, when it comes to carriers, we don't know, um, but we are reasonably sure we can say at least 100,000 of them died. Um, and that's primarily from disease. So, sorry, I'm drifting off your question, Tom, but to come back to, to what this report is and what it says and what it does, um, if we take this as an example, um, what it is dissecting is, is, is how we came to a position where that num number of people, so we're talking just for East Africa, at least more than 100,000 people, how it is that, first of all, we don't have burial locations for any of them, and second of all, how we don't have names for any of them. Um, so why do we build three nameless memorials in East Africa when... You know, if we take Chepfal on the Somme, you know, we can inscribe more than 72,000 names on the structure. So what's the difference? How does that come about? So I'm using that as a sort of, um, you know, microscopic example. Well, it's quite a substantial example, obviously, but um, we weren't exclusively looking at East Africa, but that's basically explains the kind of issues we were dealing with. So um, how is it that, you know, there is this commission narrative, which is, 100% born out of an understanding of what takes place on the Western Front. So that this this is, I imagine most people who are listening who know anything about the Commission, well, that, that knowledge and understanding will be born out of um, what it is that the Commission does in France and Belgium. And, you know, if they if they happen to be Antipodean, probably what happens in Gallipoli. So this is that, is, that is most people's understanding of how the Commission works and how it goes about its business comes from those particular um, Ex previous theatres of war, and that, for for the most part, goes for what the commission understands of its own history or has understood of its own history until relatively recently. So, 
what what we were really doing is is picking apart you know, how this this situation, how this um, post war um, work reaction to um, dealing with, with mass casualty, how that plays out beyond the Western Front. Um, and yeah, what what we found was very surprising, um, and and issues that that were relatively substantial. So. Uh, to go back to the very first example, which is Port Tufik, this particular um, issue where, you know, we have people's names, but for whatever reason, they were deliberately treated differently. So their names weren't put on the memorial, they were put in a memorial register. So we think we have probably between 45,000 and 54,000 people, names, men, casualties, who fit into that category. Um, it's worth pointing out that the majority of those issues have already been corrected. So um, in those sort of the previous couple of decades that I spoke about, Port Tufik and others, most of those have been put right by the commission um, in, a, in a systematic way, you know, when it came up, when, they, when it was identified as a problem was put right. Um, but what we've done over the course of the previous year was, was understand how that happened. And you know, that has changed quite dramatically uh, the organization's outlook and understanding of that history. So um, the other part of this being those, and this this slightly troublesome uh, to get the language right here, because I could say those who are not commemorated or those who are not commemorated by name. Um, the second one is technically right. Those at least 100,000 men who are um, not commemorated by name in East Africa by those memorials at Mombasa, Dar es Salaam, uh, Nairobi, they technically are commemorated by the memorials. Um, you just wouldn't know it because you wouldn't be able to define them. So uh, that number, I've given 100,000 for, for East Africa. We can push it as high as 116 at least um, because that then includes the casualties of the Egyptian Labour Corps and uh, the Camel Transport Corps. And those men primarily are dying uh, in, in the Middle East. Um, and we uh, there, there are others that we, we simply cannot account for. So we, we don't know. Um, those are the lower ends of the estimates. Uh, people who, who read the report will see that um, when it comes to those who were not commemorating by name, it, it could be um, multiples of that. It could be up to 350,000. We think that is vastly overinflated for a whole number of different reasons, but it's something we've included because at this stage, we cannot comprehensively say one way or another um, what those numbers are. Uh, and um, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that's definitely something um, we'll be working on now why weren't these individuals commemorated on uh, war graves after the first world war as the uh, missing and dead of the Somme were comm commemorated on the teeth yeah this is where it gets really complicated <laughs> as as you'd expect with, with most of these things i think the way in which it's been portrayed um through mainstream media um where they picked up a phrase that we used in in, in the report which is the existence of pervasive racism or the way racism um, influenced decision-making. Um, and there isn't, you know, stand by the use of the phrase, it, it, is, it is an issue and it, and it, it does influence the problems we're, we're talking about now. Um, but it's where and how that it becomes um, significant and important. And basically, really, if we were to pick it apart, um, it's, it's not a single answer. So if we, let's take the first issue, which is it's those men who are not commemorated by name on memorials initially, but we have those memorials that sort of been held in memorial register. Now, the vast majority of those men are Indian soldiers. 
um, pretty much, let's say, more than 70% of them, I think, are Indian soldiers. Uh, and if you were then to say 45,000 being the bottom end of the estimate there, we know that 30,000 of them are attributed to the Basra Memorial. So Basra Memorial is one that we, we haven't been able to put right because of the security situation in Iraq. Um, but it is hoped, you know, in the coming years, that's something we, we will be able to work on. But if you were to look at that memorial, what you would see would be um, British officers named on there, British NCOs named, Indian officers named, and this is by regiment, and then subsequently the number of other ranks killed. So that's how they were commemorated on those memorials. Uh, then those Indian names would then be relegated, if you like, to, to the, um, the memorial register. So how does that come about? It's, it's an unusual situation. And you, I guess from, from the outset, it's, we thought, is it money? Is it a question of finance? Is it something else? How, how is it and why is it that that happens there? And then, as I'm sure lots of your listeners will know, they've been to Neuve Chapelle, they've been to France, why such great care is taken to, to do things exactly the same. Um, Patcham Down, another example, or if you go to Brookwood um, and the Muslim plot there, you know, why is it in some circumstances these men can and will be commemorated? Why is it that in Basra they are not? Um, and what you then enter into is this, this really complicated web of, um, I guess, British imperial institutions um, and the way in which they are interacting and, and making decisions about commemoration. So we say when we conclude these points that ultimately what was the Imperial War Graves Commission has to take, or the buck has to stop somewhere with, with this stuff. And that has to be with the commission because, you know, the commission is ultimately responsible for commemoration, et cetera, et cetera. It's the organisation that uh, it said will um, commemorate these people in perpetuity and therefore you know, any responsibility for failing to do so has to sit with it. Um, but what you see when you start picking apart questions like this is the influence of the India office, um, the influence of the British Indian administration, the influence of the Indian army, um, and the way in which those organisations interact with what was the IWGC um, when it comes to finding an appropriate way to commemorate people. Now, part of the issue here is, is how the, the IWGC itself is funded. Um, and what you have is the number of graves that are administered by the organisation um, for each of its contributing governments. So if that's British India, or that's Canada, or that's Australia, um, that dictates the proportion of the budget that that country or contributing government makes. So if you then start breaking that down, there is a fee against memorial commemoration, but it's smaller. Um, so from one perspective, if you were to commemorate exclusively by memorials, technically your bill would. Um, now I can't say that this is happening uh, entirely when it comes to uh, the Indian government. And one thing that's, that's really worth bearing in mind here is the very large proportions of, of the Indian army who are going to be cremated anyway. So they're not going to be buried. So there's not going to be a headstone. So you have that issue anyway. Um, but what you do see, especially um, in, in East Africa and across the Middle East, is the establishment of what are referred to as British Indian memorials. So if you look in, um, in Kenya, if you look in um, Iraq at Basra, those are British Indian memorials they're referred to. Um, and I think, you know, 
it's it's difficult to to point the finger exclusively at at finances, but uh, what it is doing or the way in which this these decisions are made, the way in which um, the the or the impact of the outcome is is effectively that the British Indian administration um, may be paying less into um, the maintenance of of those particular sites, so it suits it suits the Indian government to do so. Yeah, so so I mean, one final point of this is is that the the British Indian administration lays down some rules, if you like, or it it says to the Commission um, outside of a given area, which is basically Europe, they will commemorate different. So they want to see things done and do see that things are done um, with equality in Europe. Um, but then when it comes to, to East Africa, when it comes to the Middle East, um, because they say um, the families of these men will not visit. This is, this is a genuine argument that is made by, by Stephen. Um, we don't need to necessarily commemorate them in the same way that we might in Europe. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you, you, see, you see a difference, particularly with the Indian army. Um, but uh, it, it very much depends on, on, the, on the case in point it, it, uh, and, and the particular issue with we're talking about, but it. What role did the um, race, the views of race, play uh, in the commemoration or non-commemoration of these individuals? I'm thinking about, you know, how how did these colonial administrators, you know, people in the Imperial War Graves Commission, actually view these individuals? And was it, um, as has been alleged in the media, the racism of these individuals that shaped the way that they were commemorated? It's yeah. The, the question of race is is extremely important for this entire report uh, and you know that's one of the reasons why it was picked up by by the coverage i guess the point we would make is that it is far more complicated than simply saying you know um either the the officers of the commission or um british imperialism whole saw these people as being less worthy of commemoration than others because one of the points we make and i would stress now is look at what happens in europe you know it's not the same as what we're talking about here. It, it effectively works. What you do see um, is, is equality in commemoration, regardless of who someone's, regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion. Um, the commission goes out of its way to ensure that those people are appropriately commemorated and their bodies are given, uh, or they're, they're provided with the um, appropriate funerary rights and everything else. What you then see when you take this into Africa or the Middle East, um, are sort of divergences away from these principles. And I think there are a number of different reasons. Um, some of them make sense uh, to some extent, um, and, and some of them simply do not, and they will never stand up to um, scrutiny with um, you know, 2021 moral frameworks, which is, which is, which is right, obviously, uh, and which is obviously why we're, we're looking at this and seeing what we can, re- what we can correct when we go when we go forwards from here, but um, if we are to take the situation and the legacy of, of wartime burials in, in Africa as an example, this is a really important point. I think it's something that's often missed. It's, um, you know, why is it that we don't have cemeteries with um, the, or, well, I mean, we do, but why is it that primarily those buried uh, in, in East Africa happen to be of European descent? Um, well, in most cases, it's simply because when the Imperial War Graves Commission takes possession of those cemeteries, those, those are the people who are buried there. And this actually, this is something that is very difficult to sort of, is why I'd encourage people to go and read the report, because understanding 
where the Commission's responsibilities begin um, is an important one. Um, and if you go into um, the files of um, the uh, Directorate of Grave Registration and Inquiries, and uh, is the responsibility or has the responsibility for uh, registering burials during and immediately after the war, uh, before they pass those on to the Commission, what are the grave registration units which sort of operate um, on the former battlefield? Um, what you'll see, at least in Africa, is, is the claim um, that African soldiers' carriers haven't, their graves haven't been marked throughout the war, so they can't provide an account of them. And what would normally happen if you take the Western Front, for example, is, you know, the armed forces, be that the British Army, the War Office, um, will say, okay, well, the, the, it has regimental lists, it knows those who were engaged during the war and it knows those who haven't come back. So if you don't have a body for something, at least say, well, this man is missing. And what you then see in Africa is at least the claim that the same thing cannot be done. So what we're now trying to decipher is, is whether actually, in fact, it can, and it can be done 100 years later. We know to some extent it can be because we have recovered names. Um, but these are the sort of inherited issues that the Commission is grappling with. So it isn't, it isn't like Europe, it isn't that it is given the information it needs to do its job and it then chooses not to. Um, it is given fragmentary inf information um, and also then faces some very specific and interesting issues with colonial um, uh, governments, which also influence what it's trying to do. Um, and it leads to these, as I said earlier, these divergences from what we expect the norm. Um, so in East Africa, that means the bodies it has. So the African burials that the commission does inherit, um, which is at least from the evidence we've seen, um, a very relatively small number. But what it does do is say, we'll allow those graves to revert to nature. This is the language they use, which just means to effectively smooth the grave over and allow it. Now, in, in some examples, it will say, this is because um, you know, the ethnic groups from which these men were raised, they don't mark graves. So there's no, that's, that is an argument that they use. So they go, okay, what we'll do is we'll erect a monument that you know, they'll recognize, um, represents those who are lost from a particular community, and that community then be able to engage with that as a, as a, a place of commemoration. Um, you know, that's something that we would obviously say now is ridiculous. The sheer diversity of, um, I guess, funerary rites uh, and everything else that, that exists across the continent of Africa would be, I don't know, extraordinary. Um, and, and to sort of make such a sweeping generalisation is not particularly um, effective, fair, useful or representative. So, um, but that is something that, that comes up. That is an argument that is made by the Almost, I think, to well, I, I guess you can when when you have these these issues layering up, you can almost see how you get to a conclusion at the end, um, though it's not one. Uh, but I think what what is important because what we there has often been this focus on East Africa where this looks so bad because it is. Um, you then have things flipped on their head somewhat if you then go and look in in West Africa, um, and if you take Gold Coast, Ghana. Um, a really interesting discussion between a guy called Arthur Brown, who is the principal and secretary of the commission, so running the day-to-day -day activities of the commission, um, and, and the colonial governor. And, and Brown says to him, you know where every Gold Coast soldier is buried within Ghana, uh, well, within the Gold Coast, what is now. Um, so you need to mark their graves. We need to mark them individually. 
And the the governor of Gold Coast says, no, we don't need to because without going into too much detail, there is a circular that goes out through the colonial office, which is ultimately it had been penned by Brown, just to make this slightly more complicated, where in in reference to some of the issues they're facing in East Africa, they effectively say you can erect a central memorial rather than being the individual graves of Africa. Um, and so what, what you see from the colonial governor is him saying, well, we don't need to because you said we could do it a different way. And Brown pushing and pushing and pushing in an attempt to get them to do what we would recognise as being acceptable and right. Um, and it, it doesn't it doesn't come off because Brown relents and the colonial governor says he's going to do it in a particular way. Um, and as the commission itself has, has agreed to do that, then that is what, what you see. So I'm not saying this in any way to, to defend the commission, because as I said from the outset, um, the commission has to be responsible for the outcomes of these discussions, the outcomes of these, um, the outcomes of these events. But it is just interesting, I suppose, to pick apart some of these case studies, if you like, because what you see is something a lot more complicated. Um, and to go back to this question of sort of racism, I think in certain circumstances, you know, we will always see it as such because what it is doing is dividing um, and treating people differently. I think um, there are different forms of, of, of that. Um, and I think here, what you see fairly frequently is this unusual, almost sort of paternalistic imperialism, sort of the idea that colonial authorities and it sometimes the commission itself knows knows what's best, um, and that then manifests itself in some of these decisions, which are taken because those organisations and authorities think or assume that what they're doing is correct. Um, and the problem in those circumstances, they don't are all the kids that are affected by these issues, and that's that's sort of like the the conclusion to to a lot of this stuff, really, in that um, it is. It is a, a, a British imperial understanding of what needs to be done. It is not a um, it is not a co-created solution, if that makes sense. And my penultimate question is: What has been the uh, Commonwealth War Graves' response to the report, and what are they doing to rectify the issues that you have described? I, th- I think it's fair to say that much of the Commission was as shocked and surprised as as those who've read the report since have been. Um, you know, I, I keep saying that. Um, you know, we we knew, or there had been an understanding that there were some problems, um, but it, the, these were outliers and anomalies to the commission. I think in in the sort of the mind of the commission, they weren't necessarily big problems, um, and it's something that they could put right, and they they didn't need to necessarily understand the, the context and the background because these were just some sort of unusual anomalies in in the um, in the way in which it had done its work in the past. And you know, the organisation itself hasn't really. Yeah, first of all, it hasn't had historians and archivists for very long, and and therefore, I guess its its interest in its own history um, has been limited, or its ability to engage with it has, uh, which has prevented it gaining a fuller or whole understanding of of, of exactly why these issues exist. Um, so there, there's definitely a, a degree of surprise, um, but to come round to what it, what its response to the report has been because the report itself you know we, we worked one thing i haven't gone into any details of but obviously we, we worked as a as a committee we had um a group of external um, experts and community representatives help us pick this apart um and that committee produced 
10 recommendations about you know, what the commission should be doing or could do to, to start rectifying some of the problems that we'd uncovered. Um, and what the commission has done is, is embrace those wholeheartedly, uh, which I think is, which is brilliant. Um, and so we're in a position now where we've dissected those, we're looking at the ways in which, as an organisation, we can deliver against them where we can. Um, but, but most importantly, I think the, the bit that, that sits central to the entire project, because I think we're, you know, we're talking multiple years here, we're talking about across the next five years, what can we do to recover names? And if we can't recover names, what can we do to um, engage affected communities to, you know, the commission, as people will know, commemoration revolves around a name. That's how commemoration, as we understand it, works and functions. So if we remove that, how can we appropriately commemorate these people, keep their names, keep their stories alive? Um, but what what is going to sit centrally in, in you know the way in which we deliver this work is, is you know it's not about what we think is right or what we think we need to do or how we should do it because that's potentially or arguably what got us into the position we're in today. So what we're talking about here to reuse the word co-create, <laughs> which is making me. Uh, shudder even at the, the mention of it, um, a buzzy sounding word but that is the idea so we we don't really know what you know the commemorative landscape if you like is going to look like in these circumstances um but you know it may be very different from what we know it may not look very commissioned but but the idea here is that whatever we do it's going to be in collaboration um so what the commission's doing is hopefully what we want is is to reach out and work with people. First of all, to recover names. If we can cover names, that's that's my primary focus over the next two plus years. How many names can we find in archives and collections in the UK and overseas? Um, but if we can't do that, how can we how can we reach out? How can we talk to people who who know this history? And if they don't know this history, how can we help them to tell this history? Um, that's what we're we're hoping. And finally, where can people read the report and learn more about what you do? Yep, so um, go ahead to the website, www.cwgc.org. Uh, you will find across the top there are um, specific pages dedicated to this work. So um, I think it says special committee. Uh, and if you click on that, you will see uh, a couple of videos, uh, a collection of different materials, including the report that you can download and have a read through. Please do that um, because... You know, if, if I've done anything, I imagine it's, it's sort of muddy waters even further and sort of demonstrate how complicated some of this stuff is. And I think um, the more people who do read it, um, the, the better position we'll be in, especially if there is, if people have any thoughts, suggestions as to how we might take forward the research, things like that. I'm very interested to hear about that. But um, on those pages, you will also see updates as we, as we go forward with the project. So keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on the social media channels maybe not mine because i'm hopeless but um the main uh, cwgc account and hopefully um that you'll see uh, our progress as, as we as we go forward george thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me on you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition the theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.